Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I hope you're all doing well and I hope you're all blessed. Pray you're blessed. It's always good to be in God's Word. One of the things we're going to see tonight in our study is when we pray for revival, we oftentimes forget that any serious revival that's ever taken place has been the result of a rediscovery of God's Word. Whether it's a Reformation or a revival or a time of repentance, it's always the result of a rediscovery of God's Word. Now, in our world today, we have an abundance of the written Word of God. And we know a lot about God's Word, but when we study God's Word, that's when we truly discover for ourselves what God desires from us, and it gives us the opportunity to repent and to ask God for forgiveness. If we don't know the Word of God, then we're not going to know what's right. We're not going to know what's wrong, and therefore we're not going to have the opportunity to respond. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. We're going to see in our study tonight that if we expect God to do anything in our culture today and in our world, it's going to come through the preaching of the Word of God and, of course, the obedience to the preaching of the Word of God. Let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we can study your Word here this evening together as a church family, that we can not only open your Word, but open our hearts to receive your Word and be encouraged in our faith and in our fellowship, knowing that you desire to do good works in and through our lives. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we're going to see that sometimes when things are at their worst, God raises up a man or a woman, or men and women, to stand for him and the word of God. One of the things that you can can understand about history is that clearly when things have gotten dark, God has raised up men and women to bring the light. I'll just use a few examples in our nation, in the United States of America over the last 200-something years. I think about when things were really dark during the American Revolution, and God raised up men, not just George Washington, but certainly other men as well, men and women. But a man named George Washington, who became the father of our country, our first president, and the hero of the American Revolution. But it came at a time where things were incredibly dark. In fact, it was the result of a great awakening, spiritually, that brought that revolution, which brought freedom to so many. Then, of course, we think of other great presidents. The one you naturally might think of would be Abraham Lincoln, who became president and a leader in our nation at a time when things were very dark. We were heading into a civil war, which would ultimately be fought, And this man was raised up and used by God to bring godly leadership to our nation at a time where we needed it most. Of course, that also brought about the second great awakening in our nation, a spiritual awakening. And there are other presidents that God has used, other leaders in our nation. I I think of, uh, there are a lot of very good leaders, but but some of the times where things were really bleak, I mean, during World War II, and God used a man, a good leader, FDR. And uh, he led our country for many years and led us through some of the most, uh, the the darkest, some of the most desperate times our nation ever saw. And then, of course, we had a time in the 80s where it looked like things, which actually was in the 70s, that things were really, really bad. We forget how bad things were. Those of us who lived through Watergate and the Vietnam War 
and the gas crisis of the 70s and the Iranian hostages and all that was going on. Our, our country was in a mess, much like it is today. And then in 1979, all of the th these things were happening. Uh, it was the pre prelude to Ronald Reagan becoming president, elected in 1980. And so that changed things in our country, prospered. And we, we've now been on somewhat of a steady decline. Uh, we had a few good years a few years ago, but even then, our, our nation's being ripped apart. And we desperately need for God to intervene with godly men and women. And I share this with you because I don't want you to give up hope on our culture or the United States of America. I want you to pray because just like in our history, God raised up men and women when we needed them most to be used by him. Uh, that happened in the nation of Israel in the kingdom of Judah. And this was such a time you had a terrible king, Manasseh, who repented. Uh, he had been king for 55 years. He repented maybe the last four or five or ten years of his life. Things were better. But then he had a son, Ammon, who was horrific for two years until he was assassinated. And then we read in chapter 34 and verse 1 that Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. Now, Josiah is an interesting king. We're going to be talking about his reign this evening. He inherited the kingdom of Judah from his father after his father was murdered in the second year of his reign. So this was a, a difficult time. This was a desperate time. There had been so much wickedness in the kingdom. His father had rebelled against the Lord and angered his own trusted advisors, and then he was murdered by a conspiracy of his own officials. And so Josiah was made king not by his father, but by the people of Judah at the age of eight. At the age of eight. Now, clearly, he was sort of a figurehead at that point. He wasn't actually ruling over the nation at eight years old. But he was surrounded by advisors and raised up for leadership in the kingdom of Judah. <clears throat> now, Josiah means whom Jehovah heals or supports. You might say supported or healed by Jehovah. And what God was doing in the life of the children of Israel at this time and in their kingdom was healing the nation, supporting the nation, bringing the nation through a very difficult time to a time of prosperity. It's desperately, uh, it was desperately needed, and it's what we desperately need today. And it's why I started with the introduction that I did. So his mother was Jedediah. We read this in 2 Kings 22. Uh, her name means beloved, and then she was the daughter of Adaiah, which means Jehovah has adorned. From this, we can pretty much deduce that his mom and his mom's family were godly people, but Ammon was not. His father was not. Now, as far as his relationship with the Lord, in verses 2 through, and let's, let's read all the way down. We'll read through verse 7. We read this of Josiah, <clears throat> that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And in the eighth year of his reign, so he would be 16 at this point, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, Asherah poles, carved idols, and cast images. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles, the idols, and the images. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests, that would be the wicked priests, on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. 
in the towns of Manasseh, Nephrim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. So this man brought about a great reformation. That's the point. Things were dark. They were difficult. They were in desperation. And yet it was at this moment that God chose to raise up a godly leader to deliver his people. Things were going to get worse, but before they did, there was this revival. This was at a time of, of great rejoicing because things started to turn back in the culture at that time toward God and serving God. And we'll see that it gets even better as time goes on. But here he was fully devoted to the Lord his God. He did follow the example of his forefather, David. David had served the Lord. Okay, he had sinned, but he served the Lord. He repented. But this man not only followed David, he did not follow the wicked example of his father, Ammon. It's not enough to just follow godly examples. It's important to not follow ungodly examples. You got to do both. You got to do what's right and not do what's wrong. And this man did. His trust in the Lord and his obedience to his word distinguished him among the kings of Judah. Now, there were eight good kings in Judah over the history of the kingdom of Judah. Eight. There was Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, who we spoke about a few weeks ago. They were praised at the same level as Josiah. They were good kings who followed the example of David. They were, you would say, of the eight, the best four. And you would probably say of them, Hezekiah and Josiah were about the best. Now, there were four other good kings, although they didn't live up to the same level as the other four kings. That would have been Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham. And we studied their lives in our studies through Second Chronicles. They were good kings. Uh, they were not praised at the same level as were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. So when we talk about Josiah, we're talking about one of the best kings, if not possibly, arguably, the best king. Up until this point, it seemed that Hezekiah had that spot, but now Josiah comes along. We learn a lot about him uh, in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23 as well. You can read that on your own. That's the parallel book to our study in 2 Chronicles and in chapters 34 and 35. But this is what we know about this man. He was a great man, a good man, and he was devoted to the Lord. And it's interesting because we're told that he became king when he was eight, right? And you're thinking, well, eight-year-olds, some of our eight-year-olds have gotten baptized, and some of our eight-year-olds in the church have professed faith in Christ, have received communion. And it's really, when you're eight years old and you do some of those things, uh, you really haven't been tested. You know, you're really making a pledge of devotion. You haven't really been tested yet. But I think over the next eight years, after an eight-year-old makes that decision, they're tested. So that by the time they're 16, you know whether or not they're going to follow through on that pledge that they made when they were eight or younger. Are you with me? So you have an eight-year-old steps up and he becomes king. And what's going to happen? How is this man going to follow the Lord? Is he going to follow the Lord? Well, we're told that he was devoted to the Lord in the eighth year of his reign at the age of 16. So by the time he was 16, and I would say if you're serving the Lord at 16, it's a pretty good sign. There are a lot of eight-year-olds who love God and say so, but 
16 is that age when, quite frankly, by that point, if a teenager is going to sort of step away and fall back and no longer follow the Lord, you're going to probably see that by the time that child is 16. I remember in my own life, when I was young growing up in church, I, I had every intention of serving the Lord. I went to church. I was an altar boy. I went to Bible studies, and I did everything I was quote-unquote supposed to. But then around the ages of 14 to 16, that's when I was tested. And for a few years before I was 21, I sort of turned my back on my upbringing and lived my life contrary to the Word of God. I'm glad to say it was only a few years before I gave my life to Christ in earnest. But there was, there was a time where I was being tested. And I think you have to expect, parents, that in that area of 16, a few years before or after, your children are going to be tested. The good news, Josiah was tested and he passed. So one encouragement I'd like to give you is that not all kids go bad. And I'm going to say that all Christian kids, you know, not all Christian kids might make the right decisions, but not all of them go bad either. There are plenty of good examples of teenagers that are serving God and continue to serve God. Uh, you, you're always encouraged when you see that. Well, this was the case here. This man, we're told specifically at the age of 16, was devoted. Now, by the time he became uh, 20, so over the next uh, four years, he started to reform the kingdom in his 12th year, the 12th year of his reign. So after he started, uh, devoted his heart to the Lord, he started to learn that things needed to change. And now at 20 years old, he's an adult, he's, he's able to make some of those changes. He uh, started to reform the kingdom. We read about it already. First thing, he completely eliminated idolatry and false worship from the land of Judah. Many of the kings tolerated a degree of this, but not Josiah. He refused to tolerate false religious practices within his kingdom. He would not look the other way while others disobeyed the word of the Lord. I admire this. He destroyed the infamous high places and all of the idolatrous images, very much like Hezekiah had done, but since then Manasseh and Ammon had brought them back. Well, he removed false worship from the temple of the Lord. He removed pagan priests from among the people. He removed, and you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 23, he removed homosexual prostitution from the temple of the Lord. And he removed commercial merchandising from the temple of the Lord. And he removed the centers of false worship from among the people. Now, just one little comment. It's interesting how when a culture begins to uh, degrade and give itself over to pagan practices and the worship of false gods and hedonism and all types of evil and wickedness, it's amazing how quickly some of these uglier sins reappear, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah in the city of the plains. You see this once again. You see homosexuality, homosexual prostitution, merchandising, commerciality, all of these things that, that you, you, you see happening in our world today, they're really just a symptom. I think sometimes we think they're the cause of our problems. No, they're the symptom of the problem. The problem is we turned our hearts from God. When we turn our hearts away from God and his word, these are the things that happen. So when we see this in our culture today, this celebration of gender confusion, uh, this, it's amazing to me because I just read an article this week about a particular Hollywood star who's obviously disturbed and confused. Now, he has been disturbed and confused for a very long time. He kind of dresses in a very strange way. Uh, 
he looks a lot like a she. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I saw the article, and everyone kind of celebrated this guy. Then he started doing some really bizarre stuff. And the article kind of promoted this idea that he's suffering from severe mental issues. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah? Didn't notice that sarcasm. He was all along suffering from severe mental issues, but when those mental issues uh, got out of what is considered to be acceptable by our culture, then all of a sudden he was, you know, he had problems. But with a biblical perspective, we saw he had problems all along. Isn't it amazing how they parse? Oh, well, that's not bad. All that other nutty stuff, that's okay, but this, this is really weird. You see, what we're seeing in our culture today, it's a reflection of a source. The source of the problems that bring about the symptoms is that we've turned our hearts from God. And so if you try to address the symptoms, like let's say you go to the doctor and you have a headache, and he gives you an aspirin, or you go and you just get one. You're dealing with the symptom, but what's causing the problem? God forbid you could have a very serious problem neurologically, or it could be stress. Lots of people get headaches just because of stress, right? So you keep taking the medicine and dealing with the symptom, but maybe at the source of this headache is stress. So how do you deal with that? Well, you try to eliminate or manage the stress. But if you don't acknowledge the stress, then you continue to get headaches and you never really solve the problem. In our culture today, we can't dance around the truth that the problem is we've turned our backs on God. Because you're not doing anyone any favors if you just, if you just mock or argue with someone about gender confusion or homosexuality or whether or not abortion is murder. Having those conversations is almost fruitless if you're not going to get to the source of the problem. You need Jesus. I'm not saying you can't confront sin, but understand, that's the symptom of the underlying condition. And the underlying condition is that they've turned their hearts from God. They've rejected Jesus Christ. Amen? And I say that because if you think we're going to see any change in our culture, it's only going to come through a spiritual revival or awakening, and that only happens when people get beyond the symptoms of their sin and deal with their sin nature and the fact that they've rejected God. So that's what he did. He, he went to the source and dealt with the fact that people were rejecting God. And as a result, all of the symptoms of that culture were dealt with as well. And one of them was homosexual prostitution. Now, he also burned the bones of the idolatrous priests on their altars. It's a way of saying we're, we're going to have nothing to do with this wickedness in the kingdom of Judah. In fact, he also eliminated the sources of false worship from the land of Israel, which was to the north. He did not rule over the land to the north. The Assyrians were in control of that area at this point in their history. But the weakness of the Assyrian Empire at this time made these reforms possible, so he goes to the source. You see, here's the problem. Judah would have times of reformation, times of serving God, and then the influences from outside Judah, especially from the north and from Assyria, would infiltrate their nation, their kingdom. So what he did is he went to the source where the influences were coming from, and he dealt with them. He destroyed the infamous high place and all of the idolatrous images at a place called Bethel, 
which was the place where it all began for the Israelites in terms of false worship and idolatry. You can go back in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel and you'll find out that a man by the name of Jeroboam I established idolatry right after the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, uh, and, and Jeroboam split, the kingdom split. Jeroboam set up idolatry and the northern kingdom was wicked from the day it was founded till the day it was destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C. So this influence, this wicked influence was there all along and it kept coming into Judah and infiltrating Judah. And he realized if you don't deal with the source, we're never going to get rid of this. And so he did. He destroyed those places, and specifically that place in Bethel. Now, when he did this, I find this fascinating. And I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to give you the reference. In 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, going way back in their history, Jeroboam was given a prophecy, and, and, and the prophecy was given by a man from Judah, and it was given 300 years earlier, over 300 years earlier. A prophecy was given, and it was given to the leadership at that time, and the name of Josiah was actually given in this prophecy. I'm just going to read it. Uh, it. It's actually quite fascinating, considering that it was given 300 years earlier. There aren't many prophecies in the Bible where a name is given. There are a few, but this one in particular, in uh, chapter 13 of 1 Kings verses 1 and 2, I'll just read it. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel, right? Remember, that's where he destroyed the infamous high place. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. And on you, speaking to the altar, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. Now, that's, that's amazing because that's exactly what happened. But 300 years later, by a man named Josiah, predicted by this man from Judah, who was inspired by God to give that truth. So when... Josiah did this. He fulfilled the prophecy. See, Jeroboam, as I said, established a new idolatrous religion, and God had something to say about it. This man from Judah spoke against the altar in Bethel, against the entire false religious system, and he predicted the actions of Josiah, the son of David, centuries before his birth. Now, Jeroboam became king, the king of Israel, in 931 B.C., Josiah is born in 648 B.C. and became king in 640 B.C. He desecrated and destroyed this idolatrous altar 10 years later in 630 B.C. So yes, over 300 years after the prophecy was given that declared that Josiah the son of David would destroy the altar, that is exactly what happened. Can you trust the word of God? Can I hear amen? Now, what's interesting is when that man was, was buried, they put a tombstone there. And this is recorded in 1 Kings 13 as well. And it was a tombstone that kind of described this history of what had happened and the prediction that was made. And so when Josiah did this, he found that tombstone, tombstone and he left it as a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness. I think one of the things we need to do is we need to remind ourselves every once in a while of the Lord's faithfulness. Every time you see a tombstone... 
And on that tombstone, it says that that person trusted Jesus or is in glory or is in the presence of God. That's a testimony to God's faithfulness. This man predicted the faithfulness of God, and it was fulfilled. And they left the tombstone there to remind people that what God has said in his word will surely come to pass. Amen? Anyway, this man, Josiah, destroyed the infamous high places, all of the idolatrous images. He removes, removed false worship from the towns of northern Israel, where he wasn't even king, because, again, that was the source. And he slaughtered the pagan priests from among the people. He removed the centers of false worship from among the people as well. So this is a complete spiritual awakening, a time of reformation, and things were good for a considerable amount of time in the history of the kingdom of Judah. He also showed great concern for the Lord's temple. We've seen that already, but he, in the 18th year of his reign, at the age of 26, made it his mission to restore the temple in Jerusalem. Let's, let's read, and there's a little bit of reading here. Uh, I'm going to read, let's see, from verse 8 all the way to verse 28, I think. That'll give us a good understanding in chapter 34. A little bit of reading tonight. Very self-explanatory. We read in verse 8, In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joaz, the recorder to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the doorkeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel. Again, that's to the north. And from all the people of Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That would be the kingdom of Judah. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. And they also gave money to the carpenters and the builders to, uh, to purchase dressed stone and timber for the joists and the beams and for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. The men did the work faithfully. Over them, to direct them, were, and they list a number of names here, Jaloth uh, and Obadiah, Levites descended from Merari and Zechariah, and Meshulam descended from Koath. The Levites, all who were skilled in playing musical instruments, had charge of the laborers and supervised the workers from job to job. And some of the Levites... Uh, were the secretaries, scribes, and doorkeepers. So it's interesting how uh, these worshipers, these Levites, who were responsible for the worship services, stepped up to be administrators over the repairs of the temple. Well, we go on to read that while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law, the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. And then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him. Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdan, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book, 
that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Well, Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess, Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, the son of Hashra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. And she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster. I am going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. As I mentioned before, you know, revival had begun already. But now they found the word of God and they discovered that, you know, there's more reformation that needs to take place. We're still not really serving God according to his word. This happened in the 1500s, actually earlier than that. It happened in the 14 and 1500s in Europe when the word of God found its way back into the hands and the hearts of the common people. And they started to realize that the church at that time had lied to them and told them things that weren't true, and had kept the truth of God's grace and mercy from them so that they could hold on to power. I know it's hard to imagine a world where those in authority would lie and not tell us the truth about things in order to hold on to power. It doesn't happen too often anymore, right? So... This is what happened, and then the Word of God was discovered, and it brought freedom through men like Calvin and certainly Luther and Huss and other reformers. And and they brought the truth of God's Word to the people, paid for it with their own blood as they were martyred for suggesting that the people should have the Word of God in their own language. Think about it for a minute. Why were they killed? Because they wanted to give people the truth. They were killed because the people who killed them didn't want people to have the truth. Uh, That's the answer that the devil has every time people want the truth. Kill them or kill the truth. And so these types of things happened, and it happened through the teaching and the study of the Word of God. And so we had the Reformation, and we've had revivals and awakenings ever since, but they always come through the teaching and the rediscovery of the Word of God. And that's what happened here. So what the king did, he showed great concern for the temple. Again, he's about 26. He sends his officials to oversee the necessary repairs of the temple. He's just trying to fix up the temple, really. He's just trying to repair the temple. Now, Hilkiah the high priest was given the funds, and they paid the workers. The Levites, as we saw, they were the doorkeepers. They collected the funds from the people. And the remnant from the northern tribes of Israel had also contributed funds. So you see the people of God sort of coming back together again now that the kingdom of Israel had fallen in the north to the Assyrians. And the people of Judah and Benjamin had contributed as well. And they're beginning to come together to try to to fix things. They want to repair what's broken. In the process, 
as these Levites and the priests supervised the workers making the repairs, hiring only men of integrity to complete the necessary repairs, we're told in 2 Kings, as they try to do the right thing, it's at this time that they start to discover the word of God. In fact, Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king concerning the repairs to the temple, and he tells him, Hilkiah the high priest found the book. He found the book of the law in the temple. And of course, he gave it to Shaphan, and we don't know where most of the scriptures were at this point. In fact, it's possible, in fact, probable, that the wicked kings Manasseh and Ammon had destroyed most of the copies of the word of God during their reign. Isn't it amazing? You've got to get rid of the word of God if you're going to destroy people's lives. You've got to take it out of the schools. You've got to take it out of the culture. You've got to take it out of our culture if you're going to try to control our culture. But once the word of God is given to the culture, amazing things begin to happen. Where the word of God is, there's freedom. There's faith. There's an understanding of truth, and it inspires people to stand up for God. And when you stand up for God, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? No one. Well, this copy must have been well hidden where the enemy couldn't find it. So Shaphan read the book of the law himself. Then he read it to the king. And when Josiah heard what was read, he was so convicted that he humbled himself before God. He's a good man, loves God, didn't know that some of what they were doing was wrong. Now, he knew some of what they were doing was wrong and did as much as he understood. But now he's finding out, you know, as a nation, we should be destroyed by God. We violated the word of God. And the word of God specifically says we're going to be destroyed for this. And what he did was he humbled himself. He sent officials to inquire of the Lord concerning this great anger that he knew the Lord had against them as a people for their wickedness and their rebellion. He recognized that the, that the people of the kingdom of Judah had not obeyed the word of, the God, uh, word of God, the word of the Lord. He knew that. He understood that. Listen, again, God's word is always a source of personal and public reformation. So I stress Churches more than ever need to be teaching the Word of God, not giving fancy stories and entertainment, because that's not going to do anyone any good. It's not going to change lives, and it's not going to change our world, and it's not going to change our culture, and it's not going to bring spiritual awakening. It's going to entertain you, make you feel good. That's all it's going to do. If anything, it's going to lull you to sleep. Reading God's word will prompt you to seek his will for your life. And then God speaks to you as you give your heart to him, and he reveals the truth. So the king's officials sought the word of the Lord. They go to a prophetess named Huldah. She was married to one of the other king's officials. And by the way, Huldah was a prophetess. Miriam, the sister of Moses, and Deborah are the other prophetesses mentioned in the Old Testament. And then Anna is the only prophetess mentioned in in the New Testament. So there are, there were prophetesses. Now, Philip did have four virgin daughters who prophesied, but whether they were really prophetesses or not is debatable. The gift of prophecy is one thing. The office of a prophet or a prophetess is something else. But God speaks through this woman. I think it's so important to mention this as we talk about this, and I've mentioned already, God raises up godly men and women in time of need. Deborah, is an example of that. Hold is an example here. There are others. It's so important that we understand that if a man or a woman has a heart for God, God will use that person to bring his truth to bear in the lives of those who are willing to listen. More than ever, men and women, 
need to be preaching the Word of God to those who will listen. Amen? That's, that's it. That, that's your playbook. That's your strategy. It really isn't any different than that. It really can't be. Nothing else will bring about the revival that we seek, the awakening that we need, the reformation that must happen. So, the Lord spoke through Huldah to Josiah and his officials. She did predict that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed according to God's word. And indeed it was. But the kingdom of Judah would be destroyed because of their rebellion and their idolatry. However, and this is so important to remember because people are looking at the United States and saying, we deserve to be destroyed. Yeah, a long time ago. Maybe at our very inception. I mean, people look at our nation, they say, oh, we're guilty of such heinous crimes against humanity, slavery and other things that we've allowed to happen. Yes, atrocities, absolutely. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but here's the thing. Yes, we're guilty, worthy of destruction, but God's grace and mercy prevailed. He allowed us to experience spiritual awakenings despite those sins. And the same was true in the kingdom of Judah. The Lord would postpone the judgment of Judah because of the king's repentance. And so what I'm doing today is encouraging repentance by preaching the word of God that God may spare our nation a little longer. Now, I can't control whether that happens, but I know what the scripture says. The word of God tells me that that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That today is the acceptable day of salvation. That if we cry out to God, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's the message I'm preaching. I'm not preaching one of doom and gloom. Because why would I? Why would I waste my time telling you that God is going to destroy it all? What's the point? I have to share with you the good news that it doesn't have to be that way. That if we repent, God will heal our land. If we repent and turn from wickedness. God will heal our land. Amen? Now, this is consistent with the prophecies of Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Nahum in God's word. That God was going to bring judgment. But because of the heart of a man named Josiah, a prophetess, a woman named Huldah, brought a message of grace and salvation to the people of Judah. And then, what he did was was a wonderful thing. He reformed the kingdom of Judah, and he did it, guess how he did it? Through the teaching of the word of God. There is no greater way to reform the culture than to teach the word of God. And so we read in verse 29 through verse 33 of the rest of this chapter, chapter 34 in Second Chronicles, we read that then the king called together the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And the king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our leaders in Washington and in our state houses throughout our nation did the same? How great and wonderful it would be. Could it happen? Well, I believe with God all things are possible. Well, then we read... As we see here, it says he, he uh, pledged to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Notice then in verse 32, Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin, 
pledged themselves to do it. And the people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. That is, wherever he could effect change, he did. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. And as long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. What a great and wonderful testimony. It's the last great king in the kingdom of Judah, but what a great and wonderful time it was. Now, see, we never know when that last great reformation will be in our culture and in our nation. But to think that it can't happen is simply wrong. And to pray, not to pray for it is wrong as well. Tomorrow God could judge us and choose to do so, and he's within his rights to do that. But we know that he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wickedness, I'll come and heal their land. So, so why aren't we doing that? That's exactly what we should be doing. So as we read this here, as we've read this here, he had commanded all the people of Judah to renew their covenant with the Lord. And that's what we need to do in the church. We need to be encouraging people to renew their commitment to God. He didn't hesitate to teach the word of, God, a word of the Lord to everyone. And he led his people by personal commitment and example. Far too many pastors don't know how to do that. He eliminated the sources of all false worship from the land of Israel. He commanded that all who lived in Israel serve the Lord their God and continue to follow the Lord throughout his life. And they did. And his reign is king. Well, then we have something else that happened. One specific example is given that he obeyed the word of the Lord by celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. Now, you can sit back. I've got a little bit of reading to do here, and it's pretty self-explanatory. In verses 1 through 19, in chapter 35, we see that that's exactly what he did. He obeyed the word of the Lord. And it may seem insignificant to read all these details, but you know, God is pleased when we obey his word. Amen? So let's see what happened there. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 35, and we'll read all the way through 19. Or I will. You'll listen. (laughs) Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their duties and encouraged them in the service of the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites who instructed all Israel and who had been consecrated to the Lord, put the sacred ark in the temple that Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, built. So apparently the ark wasn't even in the temple at this point. It is not to be carried about on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves by families in your divisions according to the directions written by David, king of Israel, and by his son Solomon. Stand in the holy place with a group of Levites for each subdivision of the families of your fellow countrymen and lay people slaughter the Passover lambs. Consecrate yourselves and prepare the lambs for your fellow countrymen, doing what the Lord commanded through Moses. Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offerings and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. His officials also contributed voluntarily to the people and the priests and the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehaliel, uh, the administrators of God's temple, gave the priests 2,600 Passover offerings and 300 cattle. Also, Conaniah, along with Shemaiah and Nathanael, uh, his brothers, and Hashbiah, Jehaliel, and Jazabad, the leaders of the Levites, provided 5,000 Passover offerings and 500 head of cattle for the Levites. Just imagine that, a bunch of leaders providing for the people. Kind of forgotten what that looks like. Well, the service was arranged and the priests stood in their places with the Levites in their divisions as the king had ordered. And Passover lambs were slaughtered and the priests sprinkled the blood 
handed to them while the Levites skinned the animals, and they set aside the burnt offerings to give them to the subdivisions of the families of the people to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. So they're following the word of God. They did the same with the cattle, and they roasted the Passover animals over the fire as prescribed, and boiled the holy offerings in pots and cauldrons and pans, and served them quickly to all the people. And after this, they made preparations for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fat portions until nightfall. So the Levites made preparations for themselves and for the Aaronic priests, or the priests descended from Aaron. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, were in the places prescribed by David, Asaph, Heman, and Jedith, and the king's seer. And the gatekeepers at each gate did not need to leave their post because their fellow Levites made preparations for them. So they're serving one another. So at that time, the entire service of the Lord was carried out for the celebration of the Passover and the offering of burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, as King Josiah had ordered. The Israelites who were present celebrated the Passover at that time and observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. The Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel, and none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem. This Passover was celebrated in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. This is a great and wonderful moment. It's really the the apex of the entire Reformation and spiritual awakening through Josiah. They come to the place where they're going to celebrate really the first feast in their calendar, at least the one, the first in the calendar year, and they're going to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as they do this, they're honoring God. They're worshiping God according to God's word. And they do this in such a way that is so impressive that all of it is recorded for us. So important, he didn't question the Lord's commands within his word. Many people today will read something in the word of God, and eh, well, we don't really interpret it that way, they might say, or we don't believe that. Not Josiah. He read the word of God. He said, this is the way that it needs to be done, and he did it. Now, the Passover celebration eclipsed even that of King Hezekiah that we studied a few weeks ago in Second Chronicles 30 and 31. That was a great celebration, but this was even greater. He appointed the priests. They celebrated on the correct date when they were supposed to. And it's interesting that he commanded the Ark of the Covenant to be returned and the word of the Lord to be obeyed. This is one of the last times we see the Ark of the Covenant before the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So for those who are searching for the Ark of the Covenant, we know where it was at this time. It was in the temple. What happened after that? Well, that movies are made about that. Stories are told about that. But at this particular point, they put the ark back in the temple. And he and his officials provided so that others could celebrate the feast. The people, we see them working together and serving each other during this time. It's so important we recognize we need to serve one another. In the church and in our culture, it's serving one another. That that pleases God, loving our neighbors as ourselves, not criticizing one another. And I'm just going to throw this out there. If you're on social media, I don't know why anyone would be on social media nowadays. You you need to recognize that that is an arena not unlike the Colosseum of Rome, where wild animals come out and attack you. Why on earth do you feel the need to put your opinion out there? I don't know. Get off. For one thing, it just baits you. 
it just drags you in and causes you to fight. We, we don't need more division in our nation. We need more serving, serving one another. And not by offering up our opinions, but by offering our love and an introduction to God's word. Oh, but pastor, I use social media to preach the gospel. How's that working out for you? If it's working out, great. If it's not, you might want to think about getting off of there. Well, this was the greatest Passover in 428 years or the entire kingdom. And another thing we learn, and I'll just mention it, in 2 Kings 23, we learn that he obeyed the word of the Lord by doing something else. He purified the kingdom of all its occultic practices. Occultic practices have infiltrated our culture today. You can't but hardly drive down a main street or a highway and not see astrology, tarot cards, palm reading. All this kind of stuff is is evil and wicked and should have no place in our lives as the people of God. He didn't tolerate compromise or complacency regarding the word of God. Instead, he faithfully served the Lord and considered, was considered, one of the very best kings of Judah, if not the very best. His obedience to the word of the Lord only postponed the judgment of the kingdom of Judah, but it did postpone the judgment. We remember the sins of Manasseh, which were great. His name meant forgotten, but the culture had not forgotten those sins. God had postponed their judgment. And Judah would be removed and rejected because of the hearts of the people. The hearts of the people had not changed. But this great and godly king had led people to revival just the same. Now, prophets like Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Nahum recorded the moral condition of Judah during the reign of Josiah. So if you're familiar with those prophetic books, you'll learn more about the culture. Okay, finally, we read about Josiah's uh, reign, basically some other things, and then also his death and how he died. Now, it's interesting because he didn't die because of wickedness. It might be said that he died because he was foolish or a little proud. Not a bad king, a great king, but he may have been able to avoid his death if he wasn't a little foolish. And I want to say this, there are are good, godly people that just when given an opportunity make a bad decision and suffer for it. Well, let's read. In verses 20 through 25, we'll read that much, we're almost done. After all of this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, That was his crusade, right? Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. But Necho sent messengers to him saying, What quarrel is there between you and me, O king of Judah? It is not you I am attacking at this time, but the house with which I am at war. God has told me to hurry, so stop opposing God. Who is with me? Or or he will destroy you. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Nico had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. Interesting, we're talking about Megiddo just on Sunday. The valley of Megiddo is the place we refer to as Armageddon. A lot of bad things happened there, and this is one of them. The archer shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, Take me away, I am badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot and put him in the other chariot he had and brought him to Jerusalem where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his fathers and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah, that's the prophet Jeremiah, composed laments for Josiah. And to this day, all the men and women singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. And these became a tradition in Israel 
and are written in the laments. Now, laments is not lamentations, okay? Just, laments is the book of laments. Lamentations is something else, just in case you're wondering. This is so sad. It's so sad because we've had great leaders make bad mistakes, and that one bad mistake can really just bring about their downfall. And I want to warn you, because you might be doing great spiritually right now. I might be doing great. We all might be doing great, but all it takes is one foolish act to bring it all to the ground. This is why we need to stay humble. Because if you stay humble, God will show you when you're being foolish. But if you're being foolish and someone tries to warn you, and you refuse that warning, you resist that warning, you're going to suffer for it. So how do we avoid making a big mistake like this? Well, first of all, stay humble. Try to stay humble before God. Keep yourself accountable to others. And put yourself in a place where you can be corrected so that you're not given that power to make such big mistakes. That's just some wise counsel. Listen, Josiah died fighting Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt. What he was doing politically, he was trying to prevent the Egyptians in the south from aiding the Assyrians in the north as they all were fighting against Babylon. Babylon was an emerging power, and the other powers in the area, Egypt and Assyria, had aligned together to fight and try to stop Babylon from becoming a world empire. The Assyrian Empire was weakening with the rise of Babylon and the fall of their capital, Nineveh. So Necho went up to fight at Carchemish, a very famous battle, the Battle of Carchemish. Necho went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah marched out against him. He's trying to stop him from aiding the Assyrians in their attack against Babylon. Josiah saw Babylon as a potential ally, which he should not have. And he sought to prevent Egypt from aiding them that is Assyria. He got involved in politics. You, you see, here's the thing. There are some people who are called to politics, but, but here's, a, here's a danger, a great danger. You really shouldn't get involved. As a, as a spiritual person, you've got to be careful if you get too politically involved, especially if you're not called to. And this man got involved in things he shouldn't have gotten involved in. I've known pastors that got just a little too carried away with the interviews on Fox News and other media networks. And you see them all the time espousing their opinions, sometimes just preaching the Word of God. I saw someone the other day just got up and preached the Word of God, and I think that was great. But a lot of these people, they like to hear themselves talk. And they start to share their beliefs. And oftentimes, all they do is they take fire from the enemy unnecessarily. They get arrows shot at them that they could have avoided if they just kept their mouths shut and did what God called them to do, which is preach the word of God. Amen? See, no one needs to hear what I think outside the realm of the church where I'm not called to preach that. So you're not going to see me on Fox News giving my opinion. Because, or any other channel for that matter. Because that's really not what we're called to do. At least not for me. But preaching the word of God is what I'm called to do. So do what we're called and not what we're not called to do. Amen? That's how you keep yourself safe. Amen? That's why I warn you about social media. So here's what happened. Nico pleaded with him not to engage him. He warned him not to pursue a conflict with Egypt. He even insisted that God had told him to hurry and that Josiah should not oppose God. Now, whether that was true or not, I don't know. But 
Maybe God was warning him, don't get involved. Josiah refused to listen. And what did he do? He disguised himself as a soldier fighting on the plain of Megiddo. He goes out there, refusing to be corrected by others or even directed by God. He persisted in his foolish pride to his own destruction. He wasn't targeted. He just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was struck by an arrow and brought back to Jerusalem where he died. You see, his zeal for the Lord had turned into foolish pride, just like his ancestor Amaziah, who had done likewise. He was buried in the city of David in the tombs of the kings of Judah. Great king, wonderful testimony. But he died a little earlier than he needed to because he thought more highly of himself than he ought to. All Judah and the people of Jerusalem mourned for him when he died. And Jeremiah the prophet composed laments for Josiah. All the men and women singers would sing these laments to commemorate this man's life. To commemorate this man's life. And these became a tradition in Israel and were written in the book called the Book of Laments. And so the record of all Josiah's other accomplishments has been preserved, as we said in 2 Kings. Uh, we read the last verse here in our study, last two verses. We read that the other events of Josiah's reign and his acts of devotion according to what is written in the law of the Lord and all the events from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. That would be uh, First and Second Kings. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, excuse me, Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem in place of his father. Kind of a sad end, but a great life nonetheless. We have these records. We have the book of Second Kings that we've mentioned. We have the, the annals of the kings included in this book, Second Chronicles. And then Jehoahaz was made king by the people of Judah at the age of 23. And his son succeeded him. That is, Josiah's son succeeded his father as the king of Judah. Things are not going to get better. Things are going to get worse. There's going to be a series of kings, and we're going to see ultimately Babylon, who Josiah was trying to assist, is going to destroy the kingdom. I think there's a warning there that we can be among the best, most godly people and yet there are pitfalls, and the enemy is looking to get you to fall into one of those pits. So what do you do? You obey God. You stay humble. You stay accountable that God may touch your heart, impress upon your heart what he would have you to do and not have you to do. Don't think so highly of yourself that you're called to do everything. You're not. You're called to obey the word of God and obey his will. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you because you give us warnings in your word for a reason that we might not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. <clears throat> Lord God, when we do, when we think we're strong, we better take heed lest we fall. And this great and godly man, one of the greatest kings of Judah, fell in battle because he was in a place he wasn't called to be. May we be in the place you've called us to be and be faithful to your word, and may we stay away from the places you haven't called us to be. Keep us humble. Keep us accountable. Keep us in the center of your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.